This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. In part two of our masterclass episode on lipid lowering therapy with world-renowned lipidologist, Dr. Tom Dayspring. If you haven't heard part one yet, head back to last week's episode to learn all about why lowering your cholesterol is so important and a deep dive into why we do not recommend supplements like red yeast rice, niacin, bergamot, and we covered it all on last week's episode. Today on part two, We dive into all of the details about the different FDA-approved cholesterol-lowering medications. We discuss statins, zetamide, PCSK9 inhibitors, myths and misconceptions about statins, side effects, LDL cholesterol, and so much more. So let's get into it. So starting with that, I would love for you to, you know, we've kind of dived into statins so far here and there. But now that we've covered all of the supplements that and why we don't recommend them, I would love for you to talk about, we're going to go into the category now of cholesterol synthesis inhibitors. I remember you and I were talking and you know you had mentioned if you want to first dive into the very first class of drugs um, to publish empowered CVOT data, so the bile acid sequesterants. So if you want to start with those and then we'll jump into the statins and you yeah. can give everyone a background on the data. Remember, my premise was all of these drugs are going to do something to LDL receptors to improve ApoB clearance. So the first drugs, I mentioned niacin and clofibrate failed to reduce cardiovascular, and they were tested in the 70s. While along came the first published randomized prospective trials, a primary prevention trial called the Lipid Research Clinic Coronary Primary Prevention. And what they did is they knew a class of drugs that are called bile acid sequestrants. That means if you swallow these drugs, they're not absorbable. But once they're in your intestine, they bind to bile acids, which means when the bile acids get down to your ileum, most humans reabsorb over 90, 95% of the bile acids. They're sent back to the liver and we reuse them. So it's a very efficient mechanism. But if you're on a med that binds to bile acids, you're going to excrete them in the stool. They're not going back to the liver. The liver says, oh my God, I'm not getting any more bile acids back from the intestine. What am I going to do? Easy. I'll take all the cholesterol I got and I'll just change it into bile acids. It decreased the pool of cholesterol in the liver. And what does the liver do? Expresses more LDL receptors, lowers ApoB. So that's how the bile acid sequestrants work. So the first one, and trust me, I, I was already in practice by then. We finally got a drug that works, cholesteramine, it was called. But the problem, if they're not used very much anymore, there's a more modern version of that, but still not used a lot because there's too many side effects. They're the most constipating drugs in the world. 
they bind to other things in your intestine, especially the early ones had some cause malabsorption of some other things other than bile salts. You couldn't take them because the people who took them were people who survived heart attacks and they knew they were on life's last leg. You'll take anything, man. It's like taking chemo for a cancer. I'll take it. Uh, so they were cool. They only lowered LDL cholesterol compared to placebo like 7 8%, but they worked. They reduced atherothrombotic events. Uh, here came the LDL hypothesis, the first proven therapeutic that was safe, annoying as it was, but it was safe, and it lowered LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol, and there were less heart attacks. Subsequent to that, the one that's most commonly used nowadays is colocebalam. It's beyond the bile acid question. It's called the bile acid polymer. It, it just can bind to a lot more bile acids than cholesterol. So you, you, it's just better tolerable. It also, along the way, they found out that those drugs lower glucose, and they've achieved FDA indications to help you get hemoglobin A1C to go. Nobody's using that drug nowadays because we've got so many great <laughs> things that get A1C under control now. But they had a couple of indications. But they're still there. They're probably held most now to maybe children with, with FH. Maybe you don't. You want to try a non-systemic drug or a woman during pregnancy who needs some LDL with a drug that's not getting systemic exposure. One of its downsides is it has the potential to raise triglycerides, which can be an issue during pregnancy. But you know, if you're a woman with FH before our current therapies, you had to do something. So that's the bioelasticity question story. I never like to dismiss them because they led the way. So and once pharma saw, boy, they worked a lower LDL. We got to get better LDL lowering drugs. And they did. And everyone listening is familiar with the story of bile acid sequestrants, not because of the medication uh, specifically, which I am so glad you brought up, but because I did explain to them in the metabolism episode, everyone knows we talked about the way that fiber works similarly when you're eating viscous fibers and it binds bile and how you may end up excreting more and then you reduce hepato uh, enteric circulation of bile acids and et cetera. And so how fiber eating dietary fiber can be um, an important part with regards to viscous fibers for lowering ApoB LDL cholesterol. Um, and so very much something that everyone's familiar with. And although bile acid sequestrants, as you mentioned, not commonly used, I don't really use them often either. I'm, I'm trying to even think of maybe a handful of patients I've had take them in the last few years. Very rare. It's I can't even. Yeah, but I'm so glad because that is an important part of the story. So next is statins. So please explain to everyone how do statins work and what are the general stories of statins? How much do they lower your LDL and why are they so important? Because how powerful are the trials we have for statins? Well, they're pretty amazing. And the cool thing right now in the United States, seven statins are available. In the history of statins, people have forgotten it. One statin had to be removed from the market. It's called, it was called Bacol. Its generic name was Cerevastatin. And it had such drug-drug interactions and people were combining it in those days with fibric acids, fibrates. Nowadays, you're not supposed to use fibrates at all with a statin. That's how we discovered that. So that drug with fibrates was way too much rhabdomyolysis. So they yanked it from the market. If you use Bacol at lower doses by itself, that was not a real issue. But those were the days when people were 
because trigs were up, they were combining a lot of fibrates and statins, and they got into trouble with that one. The other statins don't have as much interactions with fibrates, although they do, not as much as cerebrostatin did. So just that's a little piece of statin history. So statins, let's go back to my premise. If we can deplete the pool of cholesterol in the liver, the liver will express more LDL receptors and start pulling out more ApoB particles. The more we depress the hepatic pool of cholesterol, the more LDL receptors the liver will grow, and the better would be the LDL lowering effect of that particular statin. Cholesterol synthesis is actually 37 steps. Be thankful Danielle didn't invite me on to go through all 37 <laughs> steps. But the third step, it's called the rate-limiting enzyme. is HMG-CoA reductase changes one sterile precursor to another one, and it goes right down the chain. But if we can interrupt that synthetic step early in the game, you'll produce less cholesterol. The liver needs cholesterol. The liver will express more bile acids. Now, every statin is different because they have different pharmacokinetic properties and different potencies with binding to HMG-CoA reductase. Some statins bind more avidly and they reduce cholesterol synthesis more than statins that bind less avidly to that enzyme that's generating the sterile precursors or so. Uh, and we can, you know, all seven statins have different degrees of efficacy. But at the end of the day, if you want to make a generalization, usually with when you get on X amount of statin, you can get 35 to 40 percent reduction if you use a bigger dose, even 50 percent or more ApoB LDL cholesterol reduction, which is pretty good because the guidelines are telling everybody, at least even in primaries, try and at least lower that metric by 50 percent. So the right statin and the right person might do that. In some, it doesn't do that. Tom, my patients are going to be listening and they're going to say, Dr. Villardo told us there's only two statins, atorvastatin <laughs> and versufastatin. What are these other statins, Tom? <laughs> you don't they're have... my two favorite. They're everyone's no, the two first favorites. one that was approved, Mevacor, a lovastatin. And that's the one we all jump on because it was the only one available. Right. It turns out it had a lot of drug-drug interactions and nobody uses it. It's still available as far as I know, but I don't think anybody's using it for that reason. It's very lipophilic and there might be other issues related to that with it. The next one invented was a more potent lipophilic statin, synvastatin, and right on its heels was pravastatin, which is a hydrophilic statin. Synvastatin was more powerful than lovastatin. Simvastat was originally sold as Zocor was the uh, branding. Now it's always written as a generic Simvastat, if anybody is still using it. And then along came Pravastatin, sold originally as Pravacol. There are other names now. A weaker statin, but hey, the first two trials ever showed statins work were not with Lovastatin. Mm -hmm. It was Simvastatin in the 4S trial and Pravastatin in a secondary prevention trial called CARE which they actually gave it to what they call, hey, people with normal LDL cholesterol, which at that time was 130. <laughs> but <laughs> it worked. <laughs> the Simvastatin trial, the LDLC was 190 that they gave wow. Simvastatin. So they came along. And then uh, the synthetic statins came along. Fluvastatin, very safe, but very weak. So nobody used it. The efficacy wasn't as much. And then came along, of course, the big guy, Atorvastatin, Lipitor originally. And the one that a lot of people use nowadays, another hydrophilic statin, Rezuvastatin, Crestor was its uh, brand name. What Danielle's talking about is if you pull the guidelines out, 
which are advocating if you need LDL lowering because you are at a certain level of cardiovascular risk, certainly in secondary prevention, you should use a high potency statin. And there's two that they recommend. They want you to use a torvastatin at 40 or 80 milligrams or resuvastatin or 20 to 40 milligrams. They don't want you using the other statins unless for some reason somebody's intolerant of a torvastatin, and you can always try one of the other statins. Simvastatin, mm-hmm. yep. again, in my youth, <laughs> actually was available as an 80 milligram dose. It was way too toxic, way too oh, many wow. drug interactions. And that was taken off the market in the United States. Okay, so for statins, so... Thank you so much for explaining that. And then do you mind talking about what data we have for statins? So how powerful is the data for reducing cardiovascular events? And, you know, I think people sometimes forget how incredible the trials have been for statins well, and why their first line therapy. My goodness, we, we, this podcast would have to be two hours longer if we started yeah. to go through every statin. Uh, the statins no, yeah. by far have the largest amount of randomized blinded clinical trials. Every single one that's on the market has a trial. Many have several trials attesting to their efficacy and reducing these outcomes. All of the outcomes pretty much tied back to how much they lower ApoB or LDL cholesterol, and that's dose-dependent. And they tested different doses of different statins in these many trials. It's not only MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. There are stroke prevention trials with statins. Uh, it's just the, the data is not even debatable. But since they come in and say, and look, they know statins do other things. They're called pleiotropic effects. But as intriguing as they are, outcomes are totally related to what it does to ApoB and LDL cholesterol. Hey, is lowering C-reactive protein important? I don't know. I think if you lower ApoB, you're probably going to reduce inflammation going on in the artery. There are other drugs with outcome data that don't do a lot to CRP, and yet they work. So I think you pick your statin, that, and you're going to follow up in... I think if you start a statin, you go two months at most, give a chance to see if the patient tolerating it, judge your efficacy, and then you go from there. If you play the insurance route, you'll be escalating the dose over X amount of months, or you'll be adding a second drug to it. If they're intolerant, then you have other decisions to make. So that's their issues with the statins. But the data is uh, if when we're done, Danielle, you want me to send you the references of all the trials, but who's going to read them? Oh, thank you. Uh, my <laughs> thing is I lived through every single one of them. As each one was published, I was out teaching it. Unbelievable. So I used to it, but I had 30 years to learn these things. I pity Amazing. a young doc like yourself coming out and, oh, here's all the statin trials. You don't have enough time to read them and digest them. And <laughs> oh, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So what are your thoughts on statin intolerance? There's lots of research, which I always provide for my patients, about the data on statin intolerance and that of placebo effect, just because I think it is important because statins have gotten a bad rap. So what's your take on statin intolerance and how do you rule it in or rule it out? <laughs> I wish I could give you an exact answer on that because I'd market the test and sell it. But, yes. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> clinically. Clinically. you are going to have primarily a couple of side effects that as soon as people Google it, they're going to find out. And the first and certainly the most common is going to be my muscles don't feel right. I got muscle aches. 
More serious would be demonstrated muscle weakness, like I can't get out of the chair as good as I used to, or the, uh, muscle weakness is a very serious symptom. It doesn't occur very often at all. But muscle aches, and there's been so much study of this versus placebo, you crossover trials. Basically, the data supports that about 5% of people are going to get definitely statin-induced, what we call myopathic muscle-related symptoms. And in those people, you have a choice to try a different statin, a different dose, see if somehow they can tolerate it and you can still get to your lipid goal. The real world mantra is about 20% of your people are going to call you up and tell you they got muscle aches. And the problem is you got it's tough for a real world clinician to convince them that the statin is not causing it because they Google it and it tells them, oh my God, your doctor's killing your muscles. So it takes a really good doc. You need a doctor who's going to spend time with a patient to discuss these things. I even warn them ahead of time because they're going to find out about it and say, listen, I'm available. And today there's many ways they can contact doctors. They don't have to rush over for an office visit. And you can talk through it and give suggestions on, hey, let's see if this is really statin related or not. Don't we all wish we had a test? So, of course, if it's causing muscle irritation, if you were really injuring muscle cells, at a certain point, that muscle cell may release a measurable enzyme in the blood called creatinine phosphokinase, CPK. So uh, we could do that test. And if it's really high, we, we, it might lead a little credence. If you're going to use that, you're be you better check CPK at baseline because a lot of people have psyches, high CKs, especially African-Americans. But if you didn't check it at baseline, it comes back on a statin. You think, oh, my God, the statin is causing this. No guideline recommends CK measurement as a way to figure out who's got this. If somebody's really got it, we repeat it because at a certain degree of escalation, it's quite high. We'd at least want to back off the statin. And get, but there is no definitive test that uh, even muscle biopsies can be equivocal sometimes uh, on uh, uh, figuring out is the statin doing this or so. So it's more trial and error and work with the patient and figure around it. Hey, stop the statin. Does it go away? Rechallenge with the statin. Does it come back? Try a different statin. Try a different lipid modulator. So there's no absolute way to prove this. The CK, most doctors would check on you. But I think sometimes doctors abandon a statin for these very trivial CK elevations that have nothing to do with anything. So the guidelines recommend you really not use CK unless you're hospitalizing somebody who's got rhabdomyolysis. I never use CK either. I totally, I fully agree with you. I, I do a clinical evaluation. So I think one of the important things is setting expectations in the beginning. So I, I have a few studies that they shared at ESC that were amazing about placebo versus non-placebo side effects and statins, just so my patients know. But then I always tell my patients, listen, there is going to be a certain percentage of people. It's very small, very small, but there will be a certain percentage of people who do have side effects. So if you do have side effects, if you are in that small percentage of people that have side effects, we can work with that too. I have them do a log of their symptoms. Then they stop the medication like you mentioned. They do a washout. I have them continue to log their symptoms. Then we do a retrial. And then if they still, if the symptoms resurge, then we do a washout. And then I try a different one. So as you mentioned, a different HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, a different statin can help to yield 
different results. Some people don't have side effects with a different statin. And then I always say that worse comes to worse. If we try two, it doesn't work. You still have side effects. Then we can always switch to something like a PCSK9 inhibitor. So that pretty much works. But I, I'm glad that you mentioned that the percentage of statin side effects, despite Google saying it's much, much, much higher, it's incredibly low. It's around 5%. Now, the other side effect that's got to be of concern is they're going to tell you, oh my God, you're going to get diabetes if your doctor gave you a statin. And here's what we know. Yes, in X number of people, they will, their glucose might go up, up, up. If it crosses 100 milligrams per deciliter, we can say, hey, that's pre-diabetes glycemic threshold. If it goes above 126, you've crossed the, the glycemic threshold to be called the diabetic. Okay, so everybody monitors glucose in virtually every person we're treating with no matter what. So if we started to see glucose elevation, and say you even went above 126, so technically I could call you a diabetic, if you pull down any diabetic guideline, virtually everybody, certainly at age 40 and above who has diabetes, it's virtually mandated that you be on a statin. They're not worried that you may screw up a little bit of glycemic control, because why are statins like standard of care for diabetics? because they reduce all the things that are killing diabetics, heart attacks, strokes, bypass all the morbidities. So yes, there might be that little bit of danger. We'll monitor it. God forbid, if you really got serious glycemic abnormalities, we have many ways of addressing that with a multitude of other things, including lifestyle, that the statin inducement of glucose is rarely a limiting factor in anybody and should never not be prescribed. Emerging data also seems that you could almost predict who's going to get this statin glycine. And it looks like at the molecular level, there may be a little increase in insulin resistance with some of the statin off LDL receptor targets that they do. It turns out that people who, by staring at you, pretty much know are your insulin resistant crowd, but they're insulin resistant and haven't crossed the glycemic threshold. They're obese, they're hypertensive, they have central. Uh, increased waist sizes, strong family histories. So there are the diabetics waiting to happen. So statins maybe push them a little quicker, but never to the degree where you're hurting them with that little subtle side effect of a statin. And pretty much anybody whose glucose is going up for any reason, we got so many great therapies nowadays, we can control that in an instant. So you never, virtually never, ever stop a statin or not use a statin because you're worried about that. So the, the, the other side effects, look, I've been around too long. Any drug that's available to clinicians to prescribe in any given patient can almost cause anything. But, you know, the clinical trials show us the things that really are occurring above placebo. And it's the muscle aches with statins. It's the little bit of incidence of glycemic abnormalities and not much else, to be honest with you. There are certain statins where there are obviously certain drugs you shouldn't combine with them. Your doctor should know that. If your doctor has electronic medical records, they'll probably get a warning. The pharmacist may say, whoa, did your doctor know you're taking this? So there are some other subtleties to know, but I don't think the general public has to know all of those. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was so thorough and very helpful for anyone listening who is not sure about and some reassurance about statin side effects. So next is bepidoic acid, which you briefly mentioned. And this is one that a lot of people listening, including physicians and healthcare providers, may not 
be that aware of. So I would love for you to explain what is it, how it works, who should be using this, and what data are we specifically waiting for? And by we, I mean you and I, we're both waiting for the clear outcomes data, and I think that's what sure. everyone's waiting for. So this is one of those interesting drugs. And why did the FDA even let it come on the market? Because they don't have outcome data. Uh, you know, in days past, you could you show you affected any surrogate. Okay, you're safe. Come on. Now the FDA usually, especially with cardiovascular drugs, I want outcome data that you are reducing this serious morbidity. And of course, they want safety data. So benpedoic acid, we're going down all the different types of trials they have to do. And their first data, given lots of people were using, is safe. They weren't hurting anybody. And they showed they're acting through an LDL receptor, which all the proven outcome drugs do. So same mechanism of action. And their LDL lowering efficacy was pretty good, as good as ezetimibe, as good as maybe some of the weaker statins, certainly better than the bioacid sequestrants. So they let it on the market, but they gave it two specific indications. People with familial hypercholesterolemia who have astronomical levels that probably even the statin isn't going to get them to go. And if you can't take a statin and you got FH, you're in trouble. Benpedoic acid at least could start eating away at that. And they're doing clinical trials for um, so established coronary heart disease where you can't get to goal with a statin. You could add benpedoic acid. So that are its indications. So that's probably the only thing a third-party payer is going to pay for. You prove that their statin, uh, they got FH and the statin ain't working, or they've had a heart attack and the statin isn't getting to LDL goal. Because it is a new branded drug and it is expensive also. So it's not like it's pennies for that drug to add to it. Interesting, and they're doing big uh, an outcome trial on it now, is it's a pro-drug. In other words, by itself, it does nothing. We swallow it, and it gets in our bloodstream, and it's going to go to your liver. The liver is the only organ in your body that has the enzyme that can convert benpedoic acid to its active form, which inhibits the second step in cholesterol synthesis. The statins inhibit the third step of cholesterol synthesis. So it actually starts inhibiting cholesterol synthesis even before the statin does. Now, that's not the rate-limiting enzyme, so it's not as potent as inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase, the third enzyme that the statins do. But hey, any early reduction of cholesterol synthesis is probably going to give you more LDL receptors, and it, that's exactly what it does. But the good news is the liver is the only organ in your body that can change the inner prodrug to the active drug. So if you swallow benpedoic acid and it goes into your muscles, it does nothing in the muscles. So they just haven't seen the type of muscle side effects with it. It's basically being used as an add-on to statins in FH or ASHD patients who aren't at goal. I think a lot of doctors are using it off-label in statin intolerant patients right now. Uh, but you may have a fight to do with the insurance company on that because they don't like paying for expensive drugs that at least don't have an FDA indication. So there's a lot to be learned about yet. The I've been told that the outcome data with benpedoic acid will probably be the first quarter of next year, maybe at the oh, ACC meeting. So that would be nice. Yeah. The sooner we get it, the better. But I still, the FDA, even if that comes out, it's going to be in that that statin intolerance, that's going to get an indication. But that's an important indication. Because there are totally. a lot of people who can't take statin. Yeah. And more options, the better. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's the benpedoic acid story. 
Thank you. So next, we're going to move on to cholesterol intestinal absorption inhibitors, and this is ezetimibe. So if you could explain for everyone what you kind of briefly covered it, but just what is ezetimibe? How does it work? When is this indicated for use? Why is this uh, a medication that we do as an add-on secondary medication, and how much does it lower your LDL? And it's one of my all-time favorite drugs. I've been with it from the beginning, even before it was approved. Uh, being a, a sort of an expert on sterile absorption and everything, I was brought in early by Merck to help them teach this drug. So remember I told you the liver has a cholesterol pool. And if we deplete that pool of cholesterol, the liver will grow and express more LDL receptors. So we've talked about statins and bempedoic acid that inhibit synthesis, more LDL receptors. What if we could block the absorption of cholesterol from the lumen of your gut into the intestine? The intestine ships it quickly to your liver inside of chylomicrons. We would deny the liver a source of cholesterol. If the liver isn't getting gut cholesterol, it will grow more LDL receptors, and that drug almost certainly will lower ApoB. The way cholesterol goes from your gut lumen into the anthracytes, which then ship it in systemically or can ship it back out again to the gut in a complex membrane interchange. But that receptor is called Neiman-PIC-C1-like-1 protein, NPC1L1, as they're calling it nowadays. So that receptor grabs free cholesterol molecules in your intestine, pulls them into the enterocyte, which is step one on getting into the systemic circulation. Ezetimibe blocks partially the function of the Neiman-PIC-C1-like protein. So it induces hypoabsorption of cholesterol. Very intriguing is we didn't have it at the time, but subsequent, we know that people who are born with loss of function of the gene that controls Neiman-PIC-C1L1, they're genetic hypoabsorbers of cholesterol, and they have dramatically less incidence of atherosclerotic heart disease. So there's the Mendelian, there's the genetic proof that blocking the absorption of free cholesterol is going to be good for your cardiovascular system. Now, ezetimibe came on the market just because it lowered LDLC, didn't have outcome data, and nobody jumped on its bandwagon because by then the statins had all the data. But since then, took a long time, but they've completed a nice randomized blinded outcome trial in ACS survivors where the statins did good, but if you added Zeti to the statin and you got another 15, 20%, 10%, ApoB LDL reduction, you had less adverse cardiovascular events down the road. And since then, it, the data on zetamide is just taking off as to the LDL efficacy. We actually have a primary prevention trial out of Japan where zetamide monotherapy reduced events in elderly Japanese people. So there's plenty of data that zetamide does good. And I like to joke if zetamide blocks the absorption of cholesterol into your body, where is it next showing up? In your stool. So Zetia is the one drug that increases the fecal excretion of cholesterol, which is absolutely the last phase of reverse cholesterol transport, if you think about it. So yeah. it's a great drug. It works. Little uh, other nuances. I'm going to bring statins into this. If you use statin monotherapy, one of the downsides is when you inhibit cholesterol synthesis, your cells say, oh my God, we're not making as much cholesterol. They signal the intestine to just absorb more cholesterol. So part of the downside to, let's say the statins would be more efficacious if your intestine didn't 
overreact to cholesterol synthesis inhibition. So that's statins would be even more potent if that didn't happen. Azetamide blocks cholesterol absorption. All of a sudden, your liver, your cell, oh, wait a minute, we're not, our intestine isn't absorbing as much cholesterol. Who cares? We'll synthesize more cholesterol. So Zetia monotherapy actually increases the synthesis of cholesterol a little bit. If it didn't, Zetia would be even more potent. And that's why the marriage of Zetia to a statin or Zetia to benpedoic acid, and there are actually combination tablets that include those drugs, you get better LDL ApoB lowering than you do with either monotherapy. And it makes such great physiologic sense, to be honest with you. It makes so much sense. And uh, that is a great point. And actually inspired by you, actually a lot, quite a lot, I've started to, in certain patients where, especially secondary prevention patients, where I know we're not going to reach our LDL goal on just a high-intensity statin, I will initiate both a statin and Zetia at the same time. Rather than wasting time for someone that's super high risk, I'll initiate it at the same time. And I've seen, you know, obviously great lipid-lowering therapy with the combo. But I do have a question for you. I have actually yet to use um, azetamibe as a, a solo monotherapy agent for uh, primary prevention or anything like that. Who would you use it for or recommend it for? Is there an indication for it to be used on its own? Yes. Outside of statin intolerance or something like that. Yeah. Who's it the, is who's approved the ideal by the FDA as a monotherapy. So now look, a, a lipidology guy like me who's written a textbook on absorption yeah. and synthesis knows that there are blood tests available you can do day one on the patient, which would be a biomarker indicator that this person is over-synthesizing cholesterol, uh, this person is over-absorbing cholesterol, uh, and there are actually genetic defects that probably explains that, both of which are associated with heart disease. So if you want to measure sterile synthesis, cholesterol synthesis markers, and cholesterol absorption markers, that's an easy way day one. At least say, well, this is the person I would pick the Zetia on as a monotherapy. Primary prevention, you have a high ApoB, and you see synthesis isn't too bad, but the absorption markers are out of whack. That's the people who hyper-respond to Zetia. And there's published data on this too. Whereas if you were a hypersynthesizer, those are the people who get the exaggerated responses to statins. Vice versa, if you're not a hypersynthesizer, statins are a bit less efficacious. If you're not a hyperabsorber, Zetia will still work, but not as efficacious. So that's a little trick. Now, most doctors don't understand these blood tests. Not every lab performs them. There is a company doing direct-to-consumer finger stick of those markers now. But even that, I think, costs you 100 bucks, which not everybody may want. Insurance isn't going to pay for those tests. So those are one ways to do it. Here's another poor man's way. Is there anything else if I'm just doing conventional lipid panels that might should put the in my brain that this person might be a hyperabsorber of cholesterol? So if your enterocyte is overabsorbing cholesterol through uh, the Neiman pick or you've lost the ABC transporters that evict cholesterol, the intestine has to get rid of that cholesterol or the cholesterol would cause a toxic injury to the enterocyte. So what does the enterocyte does? It sticks all that cholesterol in a collimicron. But is there another option for the intestine to get rid of cholesterol? Most people don't know this, but a, you take your HDL cholesterol level. Where did most of the cholesterol in that HDL can, come from? Mostly the liver, but a significant poor, poor 20 to 30% is the HDL suck it out of your small intestine. 
So if you see somebody with a high LDL whatever and a high HDL cholesterol, you should at least entertain the thought that this is a hyperabsorber of cholesterol. So that might be an appropriate patient in primary prevention. Give Zetia two months of uh, trial. You're not going to have a heart attack in two months. Or for a riskier person, even to say, go with the Zetia monotherapy, you can quickly add a statin or whatever to it. So that's a nice trick to the trade. Now, listen, Brilliant. everybody who has high HDLC is not a hyperabsorber. You know, mm. women tend, actually, yes. postmenopausal women, a big part of their lipid disorder, and their reasons why tend to be hyperabsorbers of cholesterol. And mm. I, I, I've got a lot, I've author of a major study showing that. So that's just the trick to the trade. If you're not measuring sterols, look at HDL cholesterol as should I give Zeddy a, a chance here or not? Really? Yeah. So that's a cool, everybody's looking at HDL cholesterol. We, it's not a goal of therapy. Certainly you're not writing mm -hmm. Zedia to do anything to HDL cholesterol, uh, but yeah. it could be a poor man's signal of hyperabsorption, which is really Zedia's best patient. I would love, if you don't mind, for you to take a second to, because you kind of just touched on it, something that is super important that I, I relate on my podcast before, but that I would love for people to hear it from you. The importance of the enigma that is HDL and how, you know, previously you kind of touched on it with niacin as well, that we don't have therapeutic targets for HDL. We're not trying to raise HDL for any sort of target therapy. And and what are your thoughts on HDL? I And I already know what you, your thoughts are on HDL, but I would love for you with your brilliant experience to kind of, you know, explain how HDL is this enigma, how we don't have the, the exact measurement for HDL efflux capacity and things like that at this time that are sophisticated enough to see what HDL is actually doing with regards to why a high HDL doesn't necessarily mean you're safe or, or healthy and why also this impacts using triglyceride HDL ratios as any sort of marker for cardiovascular disease risk. No. And like everything else, it's a long story. From uh, yeah. uh, the initial half of my lipid career, I was advocating using drugs to raise HDL cholesterol as much as anybody. And now I dismiss HDLC as useful in the real world, other than perhaps some baseline risk evaluation. So here's the story. And you need an old dinosaur like me. So what was the real <laughs> first epidemiologic trial that taught us cholesterol's a trouble? Framingham. Mr. Fit. Mr. Fit was all men. Framingham had was a lot of white people in Massachusetts, but it was a lot of people. So, and the first thing Framingham taught us was, oh my God, total cholesterol is such a terrible risk factor. So we all, okay, now we know why we're measuring total cholesterol. Framingham didn't tell us what to do about it, but just if people had that, they're in trouble. Framingham studied triglycerides and didn't make any statements about it. Nobody understood triglycerides for the next 30 years. <laughs> then the next thing Framingham published was, oh, doctors, we have just found out that people with low HDL cholesterol have a really high risk of atherosclerosis beyond whatever their total cholesterol is. And if you actually divide total cholesterol by HDL cholesterol, that is the best lipid surrogate right now that you can predict heart disease. So all that taught us was, hey, there's a couple of risk factors here, total cholesterol and HDL. That's what it should have taught us. But everybody said, oh, my God, if high total cholesterol is bad and low HDL cholesterol is bad and high HDL cholesterol is better, we have to raise HDL cholesterol like there's no tomorrow. 
Unfortunately, you couldn't do it. You could have people turn into a marathon and their HLC would go up two points. <laughs> so there was no easy way, even if that was a true hypothesis, to do it. But then along came drugs like fibrates and niacin. Ah, 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 these drugs are better than statins at raising HDL. <laughs> That's where you got to use those drugs. And we all did. So that was the preferred combo therapy for the longest way until we found out, wait a minute, virtually and this, on another topic, it's why women were being told they can't get heart disease because they have high HDL cholesterol. And that's wow. why you got to drown them with hormone therapy because that raises HDL cholesterol. Wow. Well, there's so many nuances to this story that led us down the trail of erroneous lipid deductions because it makes sense. And then all of a sudden, the HDL raising trials started to come in, and not a single drug that raised HDL cholesterol <laughs> lowered any aspect of atherosclerotic heart disease. <clears throat> so we said, "Oh boy, we got." It. So, a long story short, in the year 2022, we know HDLs are a critical lipoprotein because they perform numerous functions that, if you're lucky, are atheroprotective. They're anti-inflammatory. They induce nitric oxide. They are anticoagulants. They're profibrinolytics. So if you had HDLs that are all constructed appropriately and carrying everything they're supposed to, they probably are related to cardioprotection. And but then we learned, but wait a minute, there are components that an HDL can carry that might be adversarial to atherosclerosis. So do you have the good kind of HDLs that might protect your arteries or you might have the type of HDLs that don't protect your arteries? How would you know that? Because if we could have a test that described HDL functionality, we would be ahead of the game. You have functional HDLs, great. Is there anything I can do to give you functional HDLs? Great. If you have dysfunctional HDLs, can I make them less dysfunctional? Great. The answer is we don't have any of that knowledge. And here's what we don't have, a blood test that you or I can order tomorrow that tells us anything about HDL function. Danielle mentioned HDL efflux, which is a very complicated, low-throughput test laboratories do with cell culture to see do your macrophages, if you fill them with cholesterol, and we put your HDLs in it, do they extract cholesterol? There's some intriguing data that that's probably a good part of HDL function. But HDLs probably have hundreds of functions, all those other avenues I mentioned. And that is right. the, the type of HDL that's extracting cholesterol, is it doing all those other beneficial things or is it not? In which case, the extraction of HDL cholesterol will be meaningless. So here's all your listeners have to know. We measure HDL cholesterol. It gives us zero knowledge about the functionality of our HDL particles. It gives us zero knowledge is this old concept of reverse cholesterol transport occurring or not. It, this is not a test that measures the flux or the composition of your HDL particles. Until we get that, maybe in Danielle's life, not in mine, will that be a readily available everyday test. So right now, at baseline, I think especially if you're not on a lipid-modulating drug, you can take HDL cholesterol, divide it by total cholesterol, but it's just the poor man's ApoB marker. That's all it is. We now know that the reason low HDL cholesterol is such a horrific risk factor by itself in most people is they all have high ApoB. 
in those early studies attesting to low HDL, nobody was measuring ApoB to say, of course, they were measuring triglycerides. But anytime you get a risk factor, you have to prove it's independent of anything else. And HDL cholesterol is not independent of ApoB. Absolutely. And absolutely. And this is such an important point. So I, I obviously see um, I see patients that have eat at all different um, dietary paradigms, but I obviously see a, a lot of people will come from various places that are vegan who come to see me that are already on a super, you know, healthy, high fiber, low saturated fat plant based diet. And oftentimes I've had patients say to me, oh, my gosh, I'm so worried my HDL is low. You know, their HDL will be 35, 40, but their ApoB and their LDLC is 50, you know, it's, and so I say to them, you do not need to worry about a low HDL. Your, your low total cholesterol is already incredibly low. You are eating a low saturated fat, incredibly 90 grams of fiber per day. You know, your total cholesterol is incredibly low. Don't worry about your low HDL in the, in the setting of a low ApoB. And so I think context is important, you know, in, in that understanding that as well. I wish more doctors recognize that because you'd be shocked. And most of the time, doctors nowadays, if they think they have to raise it, they're recommending these crazy supplements, which are idiotic to use for that purpose. Totally. So here, listen, you doing it right. HCLC is low. If that's all you got, worry about that patient. But immediately do an ApoB, LDLC at worst. And if that's perfect, don't lose any sleep over the low HDL cholesterol, for goodness sakes. And that's why this has no use in any ratio. I already mentioned the total cholesterol HDL ratio. You brought up what everybody loves, the triglyceride HDLC ratio. If HDLC is a faulty metric, you can't use any ratio that includes it, especially in the denominator. Because... There are therapies that raise HDL cholesterol and have not been associated with cardioprotection or even cause toxicity, yet that ratio would get better in them. So that is a poor man's ratio of insulin resistance. Listen, African-Americans tend not to have any elevation of triglycerides. So the ratio is idiotic in an African-American, brings you no knowledge. And even if baseline, that was a risk factor, changing it therapeutically is supported by nothing, though nothing. it's not a ratio in the year 2022. Anybody no. should be looking at the keto no. people. You know, oh, well, my ratio got better because trigs went down and HDL cholesterol went up. Of course, their ApoB went through the roof. And their ApoB... Yeah. And there you will be, you know, quadrupled and it's, you know, above 200. And yeah, of course, that's the risk factor. Exactly. So I'm so glad you were able to tangent on that because that is one that I constantly have to explain. Well, next, we're going to get to the big ones that are, I think, one of the most really fascinating developments in lipid lowering therapy and in drugs. And this is our LDL receptor extenders. So discussing our PCS. K9 inhibitors. And if you could explain what are the different types of PCSK9 inhibitors, starting with our PCSK9 antibodies. So um, for anyone that's listening, that's either on Repatha, which is the trade name, or Preulent is Preulent, and Inclycerin, the new guy, is Lecvio. Well, so um, Inclycerin's the siRNA PCSK synthesis inhibitor, yes. right? So 
So starting with the PCSK9 antibody. So how do the, can you explain, Tom, how do those work? Because those are every two weeks. They're an injection every two weeks. So how do these work? Whose indicates take these medications and how much do they lower LDLC? The other thing I was hoping you could cover too is who has demonstrated mortality benefit from these PCSK9 inhibitors? And um, sometimes patients ask me, why aren't these the first-line therapy instead of statins? And what's the clinical significance of using these drugs? This is one last one to touch on, but um, with patients with LV, elevated LP little a, because uh, lipoprotein A, because as we both know, patients with and without C- CVD that may have a uh, meaning what data do we have or not have for its use in primary yeah. and secondary prevention? Well, obviously, there's a lot to the story. And it goes yeah. back over a long time ago. The genetic studies, uh, when we started doing all these GWAS studies, we saw what genes were linked to heart disease or not. And they saw that if people had the low expression of the gene or didn't have the gene that produces this protein, it's an enzyme, a chaperone enzyme called PCSK9, proprotein convertase. <laughs> subtelicin, kexin type 9, what a mouthful, is their uh, LDL receptors live longer. And those people, they're born with very low LDL cholesterol. And because their LDL receptors live forever, they go through life with very low LDL cholesterol, as low as 10 or 20 milligrams, 30 milligrams per deciliter. And they have almost zero coronary atherosclerosis. And yet they have no anything related to, oh, my God, your cholesterol is so low in the blood. You're going to croak. You're not going to make testosterone or estrogen or bile acids or anything else. Your brain is going to shrink. So uh, that was the worry. But the genetic study shows pray that you have those genes that you don't make PCSK9. Most of us are not that lucky. So, but that led to the premise that if we could ever get a drug that in, reduces the level of this enzyme, we could probably induce lower LDL, whatever, or ApoB. And if it's safe, you would reduce heart attacks. Well, that's beyond proven right now with at least two of the drugs that Danielle just mentioned. So go back to my story. The liver, if it doesn't have cholesterol, it induces LDL receptors that pulls in those ApoB particles. And for most of our patients, we prescribe statins or Zetia to deplete the liver of cholesterol and grow LDL receptors. But what if you still didn't get ApoB to go? People with familial hypercholesterolemia, people are on their second stent or bypass or something, you know you really have to blow their ApoB LDL cholesterol away. So, okay, the statins and Zetia might hold the liver, make more LDL receptors. But remember my story, it comes into the liver cell in an endosome. And if you're lucky, it goes back and recycles. Or if you're unlucky, the liver catabolizes the LDL receptor with the LDL particle. The enzyme that determines catabolize the receptor or let it live for another day is PCSK9. So if you don't make PCSK9, your LDL receptors flow right back to the liver surface repeatedly. And you get obviously better ApoB clearance. So we have to inhibit PCSK9. Now, the first way they did that, and by the way, the liver makes PCSK9, it actually secretes it into the blood, and it either goes attaches to the LDL receptor that's already sticking out, or it jumps on the LDL particle itself. Either way, you wind up with an LDL receptor with PCSK9 on it. And once it's inside, 
that's what determines whether the receptor is going to be catabolized or not. So the first thing they did is, wait a minute, it's a protein. We can make an antibody to it, and that would inhibit it from attaching to the LDL receptor, and that ought to promote recycling. of. And that's what they did, and they worked. Interestingly, there were three of them. Two were human antibodies. One was an animal antibody, and that failed to work. But we're humans. So why would we want to use an animal antibody if we didn't have to? So the two human, they're called monoclonal antibodies, MAB, are the Elorocumab and Evolocumab. Fregulin uh, and Repetho are the brand names. So if we use them by ourselves, themselves, we don't because you're almost always, and for economic reasons, going to be on the statin or zetamide first but you haven't reached the goal you're looking for. And Danielle's a cardiologist, so she's got to be really aggressive with this. Uh, addition of a PCSK9 is nice. Very expensive drugs if your insurance company doesn't pay for them. I know I take one and they won't cover it for me. And if I told you the things, you'd say, what? But they're tough. Uh, and it costs you around $6,000 a year if you have to pay for those drugs. So obviously that's beyond the reach of a lot of people. So, but if your insurance company covers it, you got a little copay and it makes, you can do it. So all it does is it sort of takes PCSK9 out of the picture. Your LDL receptors, their life is extended. Danielle called them LDL receptor extenders. And obviously you get very significant ApoB reductions. Uh, on top of a statin or zetamide, you're getting 60% reduction. Unbelievable. There's no Tom, there's nothing like checking labs after you start a PCSK9 inhibitor in someone. I mean, literally, there nothing brings me that level of joy. It is like the PCSK9 inhibitors are unbelievable. It just it no. cannot be challenged. Like they're magical. It's instant gratification for a clinical oh. methodologist. And look, so are statins and zetamide, but they take longer and they may not get you to where you got to go. So no, the some... PCSK9 inhibitor always yeah, gets you to the goal. <laughs> Believe it or not, and it's very small numbers. There are some resistant people. It's a lecture for another night, but they 95%, wow. even more, get nice responses. The, the two she mentioned, the monoclonal antibodies, are injected. It's a tiny little, well, we're not doing a Zoom, but here's my pen. You can see injected. Yeah, there it is. Uh, it's a painless injection. It takes about a second and a half into your thigh or abdominal wall. It's so easy, but it uh, acts over an extended period. So every two weeks, it starts to diminish and then you re-inject it. But every two weeks, as long as you've got a calendar where, hey, today's the day, it's kind of easy. You don't have to wake up every day and make sure you swallow it or so. There's virtually no side effects to even warn somebody about with these other than a minuscule number of people get a little irritation at the injection site. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever seen it, but it's you got to. I've never somebody. seen injection site irritation either. Yeah. So, and if you're magical, if it happens the first time, <laughs> it usually doesn't happen the second time. So it's yeah. never a reason not to use them. We've got all sorts of studies with these. Most important is because the deniers tell you, oh, if you made your LDLC 30, your brain's going to shrink. First of all, learn this the brain needs cholesterol. It's a crucial molecule. The brain synthesizes every cholesterol molecule it needs. Not a single cholesterol molecule goes from the lipoproteins in your blood into your brain. So I could take away all your ApoB particles and your brain could care less. 
because it just makes all the cholesterol. The half-life of cholesterol in the bloodstream is a few days. In the brain, it's five years, the half-life of cholesterol. So you can't hurt the brain, but they had to prove that. So they had these trials. One was specifically dedicated to checking serious neurocognitive tests. And because we're lowering LDLC to as low as 10, 20 in these people, there was zero incidence of cognitive impairment with using a PCSK9 inhibitor. So dismiss that uh, internet garbage right away when you hear that. Totally. The good news is too, oh, I'm lowering LDL cholesterol in the blood. I'm a guy, my testes will never make any more testosterone. Danielle's ovaries can't make it. Nonsense. Those glands can synthesize all the cholesterol they need, or if they need extra cholesterol, HDL is the major supplier to the gonads in the adrenal cortex. So lowering your LDLC or ApoB has nothing to do with adrenal or gonadal function. So there's another worry out of there. So there's almost no downside to these drugs. And the good news is the two antibody therapies we're discussing have produced clinical trials where they dramatically reduce major adverse cardiovascular events and did not appear uh, cause any adverse side effects. And the question, oh my God, but what did they do to mortality? Listen, mortality, remember ApoB causes atherosclerosis over years of exposure to the artery. So it's extremely unlikely that if I took 5,000 people and lowered their ApoB, that it's going to have much of an impact over the next two years, especially I'm treating people who are already full of atherosclerosis and everything. I'm probably going to have to have 5, 10, 15 years of experience before I'm going to start impacting on mortality, especially in these nightmare patients. So you can't even use that. The only reason you look at mortality in these trials is to make sure you're not causing mortality. That would be a safety issue. But I don't expect any drug that modulates lipids to reduce mortality over a two, three, four-year trial. In the uh, PCSK9 trials, we're like two, three years. We're now starting to get the extension of those trials where we're starting to see a signal. But don't bother me with the mortality garbage. They don't <laughs> increase mortality. And I truly believe the curves keep separating over time. Eventually, we'll see. How could you not lower the incidence of atherothrombotic diseases and not benefit, and they're not causing cancer or something else that would kill you? Why would they not ultimately improve mortality? It'd be inconceivable that they wouldn't. So it's a nonsense argument. I totally agree. And uh, not that this is clinically relevant, but I do find it's re interesting from a research standpoint is that, you know, the only research that we've actually seen, despite people saying we see it on a plant-based diet, which is not really accurate, but the only research where we've actually seen some with the accurate testing. So we actually see using OCT or IVIS in the cath lab, we've seen lesions regress yeah. is with PCSK9 inhibitors. Look, the data is it's just everything is good about these drugs. Whether I mean, outcomes Amazing. are the number one thing. ApoB is crucial, but it's nice to see plaque disappearing in these images too. How could that be bad? You know, so uh, uh, it's and the type of imaging today is great. When I see an LDL of 30 on these, I and my patient's like, oh, should I be worried? I'm like, this is no, this yeah. is a great day. Oh my God, yes. Uh, then you got to joke, well, wait a minute. 
Now we got to figure what else is going to kill you over time because it's not going to be heart disease. Because it's not going to be heart disease. Exactly. <laughs> it's not going to be heart disease. Yeah. That is for sure. Get your cancer yeah, no, screening I, and all that other stuff. Yeah. I know. And I, that's this is like PCSK inhibitors give me so much joy. It's just, you know, that's why I love preventive cardiology so much. You just to see that drop. I've even seen patients' angina improve once they get their lipids this low, you know, it's... Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Remember, I'm a guy who grew up when we had nothing. So if you came yeah. into the ER with an acute coronary syndrome, you were probably in pulmonary edema, fulminant, oh. and half of them were dead by morning. And oh now, my gosh. you know, young residents nowadays, even cardiac, yeah, they see a lot of bad stuff, but they don't see it anywhere near the incidence of I did when I was growing up. So you, and and when we see it now, we say this could have been prevented. Yeah. And I know it now. Back then, I was praying one day we'd have something, yeah. but yeah. Well, we do. So, well, next up is another uh, one that is you know new on the market. Everyone may not be as familiar with, but a it's an siRNA PCSK9 synthesis inhibitor called Inclisiran. This is injected every six months, and I was hoping Tom, you could kind of explain how this works and who's indicated to take this. How much does this also lower LDLC, and what are the outcomes we're waiting for this specifically with Orion? So we've already explained PCSK9 is a bad guy because it's destroying your LDL receptors. So the monoclonal antibodies take it out when it goes into plasma, and then it doesn't do its dirty work. What if we could inhibit the genetic synthesis of PCSK9? Well, to do that, we have to mess with either your DNA or your RNA. So now we have a drug, siRNA, that goes in there and it reduces the synthesis of the PCSK9 peptide, the chaperone enzyme that is ultimately going to help destroy your LDL receptor. So it's basically a PCSK9 synthesis inhibitor. It's not an antibody that takes it out once the liver produces it. So it's kind of cool. So, but let's do trials with it. Let's see if it reduces heart attacks. Let's see if it's safe. So when glycerin was approved by the FDA to come on the market with no outcome data, the trials are underway. So we're going to get it. But why did they let it come on the market? Because it works through the LDL receptor, basically by interfering with PCSK9, which two proven drugs work that way. So they, didn't, they thought the mechanism of action was incredibly plausible and they weren't showing a safety signal. So welcome to the market. But here's the difference between the two. When we inject that drug, and it's a little bit more to quantity, so technically a little bit harder to take, but still very easy. It's attached to a molecule that is hepatospecific. So it rushes it right to your liver, doesn't go anywhere else, and it's internalized in the liver where it attacks the RNA that's in that liver cell that's producing PCSK9. The cool thing is, and it's very complicated discussion, the RNA goes into a big complex and it hangs around for many, many months. So it's not like I got to take it every two weeks because the serum level's going down. In your liver bound to the RNA, it lasts for many, many months. So how cool is that? If it does work, you're not going to have to take it very often. So the current indications are you give the injection. Some people say, hey, at three months, repeat it to make sure it's working. And it's six months again. Once you see it's working, you can really check your blood every six months and inject it every six months. I'll bet they might find some people where even less than every six months you have to inject it. So why would that matter? Like, hey, I'm doing it every two weeks. Look, I do it. It's easy. I'm a doctor. Uh, 
I'm very, they're working good in me, the monoclonal antibodies. But if I was a businessman in my day, I had 3 million frequent flyer miles where I'm flying all over the country and the world. And, you know, now all of a sudden you got to pack a drug in your luggage and it's a pen and the CSA screeners are getting nervous because what's that? You know, so uh, it's for a very busy person. It compliance is tremendous. How cool is that? If we have a drug where a person only has to twice a year get an injection and it takes out their LDL, there's that's great compliance advantages. And even, certainly with statin, rosetamide, and even with the PCSK9 inhibitors, we see our darn patients over time are less likely to comply with chronic use of our drugs. We have to keep kicking butts, as we call it in New Jersey, or did in my day to people. You got to keep taking your medicine. You got to keep taking. So this is one you worry a little bit less about compliance. In the future, there's going to be ways of probably altering our genes where it's a once in a lifetime. Yes, sec. They're working uh, on a PCSK9 vaccine now where you'll just get vaccinated periodically and you won't make PCSK9. So who knows where we're going? But that's the difference between inclycerin, the PCSK9 synthesis inhibitor versus the antibodies. And the last part of this story is this lipoprotein little a that Danielle has mentioned. That's a particularly dangerous LDL particle because it's not only an LDL, but it's carrying another protein that has great atherogenic potential. That secondary protein is called apolipoprotein, small case, little a. It's not a capital A. Okay. So if you have that, the only way you have that is you inherited the genes that manufacture the liver production of apo little a, and then it sticks it to your LDLs and you have too many LP little a particles. Bad news, an independent risk factor for heart disease. It's one of the early indications who should you consider lipid modulating therapy on people who have high LP little a because they're the ones who get earlier heart attacks compared to people who don't have LP little a. So interesting, what do we have any pharmacologic way of lowering LP little a? Not that it's FDA approved, we don't. There are investigations of drugs that inhibit APOA synthesis. We're not going to have data on them for several years yet. We've got our fingers crossed for safety and efficacy, but they're not here yet, so we can't use them. The only drug that I could use for you, PCSK9 inhibitors do have the ability to lower LP little a. Not to the extent that these modern experimental drugs might but you can get a 25 to 30% reduction in LP little a, which no other drug at the current time can do. Now, we do lack level one evidence that lowering LP little a matters, but most of us believe it probably does. So if I could give you a PCSK9 inhibitor, primarily to blow your ApoB away, but at the same time, if you're an LP little a patient, it reduces it, would I be unhappy? No. And interestingly, in the two PCSK9 ACS trials, alorocumab and evolocumab, they showed that in the people that those drugs also lowered LP little a, there seemed to be additional benefit compared to the people who didn't. So that's early evidence that, wow, right now you can make the case that you have high LP little a, take a PCSK9 inhibitor. The bad news? The FDA doesn't give you that indication. Third-party payers are not going to let you prescribe that probably. But you can always try and make the case for the high-risk patients. Well, I'm giving a PCSK9 because of the ApoB, and they might sign on to that. Or an FH patient. And FH people have a lot of 
LP little a coexisting with their LDL receptor defects. The last part of this story is how does uh, PCSK9 inhibitors lower LP little a? LP little a particles basically cannot be cleared by the LDL receptor. So if I give you a PCSK9, it'll clear the LDL particles that don't have APO little a on them, but the ones that do can't be cleared. So the only way to reduce it is prevent the hepatic synthesis of APO little a or not let apo little a join to what we call primordial LDL particles in the liver. You take APOA, you attach it to a little baby LDL. Now you have, you've made an LP little a particle, which the liver secretes. So both the antibodies and the uh, siRNA take out APOA within the hepatocyte also. So you produce less LP little a particles. So they lower LP little a not by improving clearance, but by inhibiting synthesis of the LP little a particle. Very intriguing. That way only came known in the last year or so with the PCSK9s. We knew they lowered LP little a. We didn't know how, but now we do. So interesting. And it's also an interesting point that you're making too with regards to, because we mentioned before earlier that niacin can lower um, LP little a, but we know that that does not improve cardiovascular um, outcomes and things that we're you know, concerned about with reducing cardiovascular events. But as you mentioned that the um, subpopulations that were studied in the PCSK9 inhibitor trials, when they did, as Tom mentioned, when you looked at the individuals with elevated um, lipoprotein A who, who had a reduction, those individuals had an increased um, reduction in risk. Yes. And of course, listen, the niacin is a toxic drug. PCSK9s are safe. Right. They don't bring diabetes yep. to the table, atrial fibrillation, yep. ulcers, blah, 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 blah. So, you know. Maybe it's good that nice and lowered LP little a data doesn't show it, but you can't accept right. that degree of toxicity with a drug Absolutely. that modulates any lipoprotein. I can't wait for the new medications uh, to hear more about what's going to happen when those come uh, eventually through through the. Yeah, we'll uh, we all can. But as a guy who's been around forever, all I would tell you is wait for the data because there have been so many times always. in my life that what a slam dunk drug. It's going to be a miracle worker. And it failed. Some of the early. I, my phrase is always, you know, mechanisms are interesting, but always waiting for outcomes. At the end of the day, that's, you know, we, we've been wrong quite a few times. And then, you know, the outcomes are what matters most. Well, the last thing that um, I wanted to ask you about, something that gets um, sometimes forgotten about a lot, kind of gets brushed by is, you know, the forgotten stepsister of lipidology, which is high triglycerides. <laughs> and uh, I might, I feel like my own social media following and uh, probably thinks, you know, all I talk about is APOB, but I do care about high triglycerides. You know, I did explain what triglycerides are in our previous episode. So, you know, for anyone listening, they've already learned all about what triglycerides are and how uh, they are transported throughout the body, et cetera. But when we talk about high triglycerides, Tom, can you explain what are the ideal uh, ranges, what's moderate, what's high, and at what levels do we require treatment, and what are the treatments for high triglycerides? It's kind of a cool lipid because you really have to divide it into two types of patients, and that depends on their triglyceride level. So basically, if you have a triglyceride higher than 400, certainly above 500, or even worse than that, your major risk, especially after a party weekend, is your triglycerides are going to be several thousand. You're going to develop acute pancreatitis. Absolutely. So, although we don't have trial data, it is certainly believed that if we take people with trigs of 800, 900, 5,000, 
and lower their trigs, at least will downplay acute pancreatitis, which is not a fun disease, as anybody mm-hmm. who's done an internal medicine residency knows. Oh, Very yeah. lethal, terrible disease to manage, terrible. Uh, not fun. So with potential uh, horrible complications. Fortunately, most people don't have triglyceride levels at that metric. Now, by the way, if they do, the uh, approach other than, of course, is lifestyle is huge. But the two drugs we would consider using to lower triglycerides initially were the fibric acids, the fibrates. And, you know, there have been several over the year. The one most commonly uh, used nowadays is phenofibrate. Phenofibric acid is available as a brand name drug, Trilipics, uh, and it has better bioavailability than phenofibrate. But, so that's where you, you're probably on sound ground using that type of fibrate. By the way, the reason we're not using fibrates in most other people is because there's only one fibrate which reduces cardiovascular events, only as a monotherapy, not as an add-on. That was gemfibrazole, which nobody uses anymore because it's pretty much contraindicated with a statin. Phenofibrate has failed a bunch of uh, large outcome trials for a lot of reasons, but they have no evidence that they work, so they're not recommended as an adjunctive uh, lipid-modulating drug outside of the extreme hypertriglyceridemia now. Interesting, in the pheno trials, they did reduce microvascular events, but it's post-hoc analysis, eyes, peripheral neuropathy, ulcerations, amputations. And uh, even in the more recent fibrate trial, Accord, which was Simba plus phenofibrate, there were ocular benefits. So, And that's for ophthalmologists to decide if you have diabetic retinopathy, do they want to try a fibrate? But as a lipidologist, we're not prescribing them for microvascular disease for the most part. And we don't have a lot of proof that you would help macrovascular disease with it. So we're going to use them in those nightmare triglyceride cases. The most common triglyceride elevation most doctors deal with are trigs between the guideline says, hey, 150 and above up till 400 is the most common type of triglyceride abnormality. Do you know a triglyceride of 150 is the 75th percentile for triglyceride? So that, that, wait a minute, any lipid metric that's at the 75th percentile, I'm a little nervous. So I think it's outrageous that they relate risk to trigs of 150. A physiologic trig is like 90 and below. So that's probably physiologically what your trigs need to be. My problem is I don't have an outcome trial that says if I use a drug that lowers trigs from 150 to 90, I reduce heart attacks. Because almost all the drugs that do that lower ApoB so much, they say, ah, the triglycerides had nothing to do with the benefit of that drug. So this is the dilemma with waiting till trig is 150. Remember, it's all clearance. If you produce extra triglycerides, they come out in your VLDLs. Your VLDLs are packing extra trigs. Using a lipid transfer protein, they transfer the triglycerides into your LDLs, into your HDLs, depleting those particles of your cholesterol. So HDL cholesterol goes down, LDL cholesterol goes down, but triglyceride-rich LDLs have terrible clearance at the LDL receptor. So your ApoB goes through the roof because... The particles conform differently, the ApoB conforms, and the receptor doesn't grab it. So triglycerides are big extenders of LDL plasma residence time. ApoB goes up, up, up. So the real target when you treat people with triglycerides disorder is lower ApoB. 
the same target when you have people with low HDL cholesterol, lower ApoB. Don't lose sleep on what you're doing to triglycerides or what you're doing to HDL cholesterol. So it's a tough concept for, as you know, I do nice drawings that try and explain this on the particles and everything, but that's the dilemma with that. Recently, and it's the final nail in the coffin, there was a newer generation selective PPAR uh, inhibitor, pemifibrate, and it was, they only enrolled people with high trigs, low HDL cholesterol, at-risk people, and they gave them this very safe, modern fibrate, and they just stopped the trial because it was null after several years, wasn't doing them. So it's like all the other fibrates other than gemfibrazole, which nobody's using anymore. So uh, I think fibrates are dead other than the extreme hypertriglyceridemia or look. If you came to me in high ApoB and I'm giving you a statin Zeti and a PCSK9 inhibitor and your trigs are a little borderline, you say, okay, you want to try a fibrate as a fourth line drug or they're totally intolerant of everything else, be my guess, but not early in the game anymore. Half of my life was teaching fibrates and the potential benefits of it. But I move on when the data no longer supports what I say. I have Absolutely. to say, you know. Absolutely. So that's sort of the trick, the fibrate story. And um, omega-3s. Oh, yes. So they are FDA approved. If your trig is 400, 500, extreme serious hypertriglyceridemia, you will get lowering. And there's many plausible mechanisms as to why. But that's not the average triglyceride patient you and I see. So who should we be adding an omega-3, perhaps two are people with great LDL control, thanks to statins, azetamide, or whatever. Would When should we use an omega-3? And if we should, well, should it be solid EPA? Should it be solid DHA? There are such supplements. Should it be a mixture of EPA mm. and DHA? Or should it be acryl oil, which is a uh, basically a lysophospholipid that doesn't carry free fatty acid molecules, but you know they're promoted heavily by the supplement makers. So number one, let's dismiss that. There is zero evidence with krill oil for anything. So don't ever Absolutely. entertain the possibility of you. Absolutely. All right. So now let's move on to EPA or EPA plus DHA. The only people using pure DHA are neurologists who deal with cognitive right. impairment because the brain needs a lot of DHA. So uh, we, we're not going to factor that into tonight's discussion. Right. So here's the difference. There are plenty of trials with the omega-3 fatty acids, mostly the combination, that at lower doses, all of the uh, epidemiologists say, oh, it's good, it's good. But when you get to randomized clinical trials, if you're only going to give a gram of it, forget about it, it doesn't show cardiovascular benefit. So yep. there might be good reasons to use omega-3s, but cardio protection is not one of them at this stage of the game. So along came now the trials we were looking for. Let's give because there's a company that makes one, pure EPA, but at prescription strength, 4,000 milligrams a day, divided doses if you must, or let's give EPA plus DHA four grams a day via uh, the preparation that has such a makeup. And the first trial that came down was Reduce It, where they use the EPA, isopent uh, ethyl or Amarin is the, the company, Vasepa, the brand name yeah. of the drug. And the Reduce It trial, remember, people forget this. It's not a Vasepa trial only. They took people who had 
higher triglycerides, lower HDL cholesterol, diabetes, or high cardiovascular risk based on other factors. And they said, I'm going to blow your LDL metric away with statins or statins plus azetamide. We're going to get your LDLC under control. And then we're going to give half of the people a placebo and half of the people EPA. And lo and behold, the people who took EPA had significantly improved residual risk compared to the people who did not. There are, you get into arguments on, oh, did the placebo screw things up or not? But the mineral oil, most yeah. Most people <laughs> are willing to accept that the EPA worked in that trial. So right, right now, if you're following the rules and getting LDL to go, but because the trig was above 135, which was the criteria you had to meet to get into that clinical trial, as well as have any other risk factors, you want to add EPA because you'll get better cardiovascular outcomes, I'm all for it. Here's the problem. And they've done so many post hoc analyses showing you, God, it improves this outcome, that outcome, that outcome. They have no idea why. It had nothing to do with the amount of triglyceride lowering. It had nothing to do with any effect on ApoB. So EPA seemingly works because of some totally unknown pleiotropic effect. We do know this. If at baseline you measure EPA, and they did serum, they didn't do the omega-3 index, but they would be yeah. the same. The SEPA worked best in the people with the lowest EPA baseline levels. And the, it worked best in the people that raised the EPA to the more the highest levels. So that wow. if you're in doubt, should I use EPA or not? Run omega-3 level if it's low and they meet the other criteria, yeah, okay. Most of the guidelines have incorporated EPA into it as an adjunctive drug based on the factors I've just talked about. Now, along came a company uh, that was making a product. It was a combination product of free omega-3 fatty acids. That means they weren't a sterified to anything. And the belief was because they were free fatty acids, they're rapidly absorbable, have much better bioavailability. But they used EPA and DHA, both free, not ethyl esters, not triglyceride esters, not phospholipid esters like krill oil is free. So, boy, if you swallow that pill, EPA and DHA ought to go zoom right into your, through your intestine, into the lipoproteins in your bloodstream. And they, same enrollment criteria, high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol. These are not low risk people. And darn it, no trial. Didn't hurt anybody. It was a strength strength trial, right? Didn't work. So right now the argument is, would you rather use EPA based on the reduced data or the combo product used at, uh, in the strength trial? Well, the evidence people are going to say you got to use EPA. And I think if you have yeah. a patient with all that criteria, I would too. I don't like to deny people DHA if I've already measured that in the blood and it's also low. Mm. And I don't know if, geez, I gave the SEPA and I threw in a little DHA. There are mm. people out there pontificating that DHA is a dangerous drug. I don't believe that for one second because I think our right. brains would be in big trouble if it was. So, and remember, DHA, the brain can't synthesize it. It has to go through your bloodstream and get into the brain. So, uh, and it can pass if attached to a phospholipid through the blood brain barrier. So, you know, 
I think evidence-based is you use uh, the SEPA right now in your high-risk. Right now, but yeah, lots to be uh, elucidated from that. That space is really interesting because I feel like you bring up a lot of really good points, like why EPA only, you know? And yeah. uh, I, I agree, it's, it's not so clear. So for someone with pure hypertriglyceridemia, so someone with low uh, LDLC, you know, their ApoB is not too high and they have just triglycerides above 500. What's your first preferred agent? Personally, I would give a fibrate. They they have outcome data with gemfibrazole. Mm-hmm. The phenofibrate data, if you look at the people with high trigs, low HDL cholesterol, mm-hmm. granted that's secondary endpoint analysis, but it worked very good in those people. So I think a fibrate is your first choice. But I will tell you, if your trigs are up eight, nine hundred, a thousand, probably the fibrates are not going to get it to where you want. So I tend to use fibrates and high dose omega-3 fatty acids omega-3, in such yeah. people. But if I had to start one, I would go with the phenofibric acid right now. And oh, look, it's easier to sell uh, an omega-3 to a layman because they're going to go, oh, it's a fish oil, thank you. Whereas they're going to Google a fibrate and they're going to get all sorts of stuff they can't comprehend. So. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dayspring. This has truly been a absolute joy and an absolute masterclass in all things pharmacology that has to do with lipids. I cannot even tell you how incredibly helpful this was. I'm sure everyone listening right now is just beyond thrilled that they got to learn this from you. I mean, this this should qualify as CME because it was so educational. You're amazing. And Dr. Dayspring, you literally have been for the longest time someone that has helped me understand lipids in a way that has made me love lipidology. I truly do. And a lot of it is because of you. I cannot thank you enough. You've inspired so many cardiologists and so many cardiology fellows, I think, to take a real interest in prevention and lipidology. So I, I can't thank you enough. And I know people listening are going to agree with me on that because you really do such a great job educating patiently everyone online about this. So please let everyone know where they can find you on social media. Yes, that's pretty easy. At Dr. Lipid on Twitter. Uh, Danielle mentioned I have 18. This week I passed the 20,000 mark. Now I'm not like Danielle who's in the stratosphere no, on Twitter. No, no, no. For no. a Lipid guy, that's pretty good. You know, 20,000 followers. So well, 20,000 is amazing. You deserve 20 million. I mean, literally, you've taught us all so much. So thank you endlessly. I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Well, you you make an old lipidologist feel good, Danielle, but you were a great interviewer because you know the topic pretty well yourself. But you know how to cast and pull the good information out of me. But the last thing I'm going to leave you with, there was a point in my career where I, I was actually denied the ability to come to a certain hospital or two to lecture on lipids because some blowhard in those hospitals say, oh, he's not a cardiologist. What could he ever teach us about lipids? That mindset is long gone, thank God. But this was in the pre-NLA day, days. They didn't want to hear from a lowly internist like me. <laughs> no, no. And nowadays, there are some cardiologists that literally, cardiology is so subspecialized now that I feel like there's cardiologists that are like, oh, I'm just going to send my patients to you for lipids. I'm like, okay. You know, it's just everyone's got their own little niche now. Not only do you have to master lipids, you know, all the glycemic stuff, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the renal function, the heart failure. Uh, your head's got to be exploding as a cardiologist nowadays. 
but you know, without education from lipidologists too, I think that your work in this space has been so important in educating cardiologists as well. Not only have you inspired internists to subspecialize in lipids, but you've also inspired cardiologists to focus on it too. It's really important because we don't get as much training about lipids as you would think in in fellowship. Oh, I know. Neither do internists, to be honest with you. So you really have to start studying it yourself later on at an appropriate time in your career. But it is important. Besides your Twitter, which is a phenomenal resource, I cannot uh, emphasize enough. What else can um, you do? You have books that you um, recommend, including yours, that people can learn? There's two that I would recommend. One is the current edition of a textbook called Therapeutic Lipidology. There's a lot of chapters written by a lot of really good people. They're all valuable. I've written a chapter on how the intestine handles cholesterol, the mm-hmm. sterol stuff, is that of my bile acidity question, stand off sterols. It's a cool chapter that will uh, obviously teach you a lot. It's not for everybody because it's a, it's like a 70-page chapter. So there was a first edition, but you don't want to get that one anymore. You want to get the uh, uh, newer edition. The other thing is the top laboratory clinical textbook in the world now is called the Teats Textbook of uh, clinical chemistry and molecular diagnostics. It's a thousand page book that discusses virtually everything you can measure in the blood. But one chapter is totally devoted to lipids and lipoproteins. It's a super, it's like Brunwald's cardiology book, but in the lab chemist book. And I, along with two other guys, one is Alan Ramali, who's the director of lipids and lipoproteins at the NIH. And Russ Warnick, who's now retired, but a mentor of mine, he was the original world's top lipid clinical chemist. So they, we came together. Alan asked me to write. the. I wrote the part of the chapter that all deals with lipids and lipoproteins. He wrote the part that has to do with the laboratory assays that they use. And Russ was sort of the grandfather that his name to the chapter. But that is super prestigious that I ever got my name on. So that's, look, you have to buy the textbook, which most people won't. It's a big chapter. But look, if you really want to know lipids, it's it's 2018, I think it got published. So it's not that old. So it's the sixth edition. So that would be a way to go. But look, uh, Valentine has a great uh, lipid lipidology mm-hmm. textbook. And uh, there's one out of Hopkins uh, years ago, uh, really good. So there's great textbooks out there. Follow me on Twitter. I read the lipid journals every day. and I point you to good stuff. That's all you need is to follow Dr. Dayspring on Twitter. Truthfully, that's all the lipid education you need. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tom. My pleasure, Danielle. And uh, I can't wait for this to come out because it should get a few chuckles from a lot of people. And we'll annoy a few people, too, as we always do. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.